Welcome to the Florida State Podcast of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, where we showcase student entrepreneurs to learn about the startups they are working on, check in with alumni to hear about the companies they are building, and learn from seasoned entrepreneurs who have built amazing companies. Hosted by Mark McNeese, a serial entrepreneur who has started for-profits, non-profits, social impact companies, and is currently entrepreneur-in-residence at the Jim Rand School of Entrepreneurship. Uh, well, really great to meet you all. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, as Mark said, had the uh, opportunity to meet him over the summer. My name is Lisa. I'm on the social impact team at Lyft, uh, based out of San Francisco. Um, I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about myself and then um, some about what we're doing at Lyft, because I think it's um, we're, we're doing some really interesting work that looks different from what other companies are doing. So just going to give a little bit of a spiel about like what we're doing and what that looks like and how I think it compares to what's happening in the broader corporate responsibility field. And then hopefully we'll have a good amount of time for some Q&A at the end um, and to chat about whatever you guys have questions about. Um, so my background is um, I grew up in New Jersey. I uh, went to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and studied international relations um, and then ended up in international development doing water and sanitation work um, in Tanzania and Malawi for about two years before moving back to New York and falling into uh, the kind of social impact consulting space. And when I was in that space, mostly at nonprofits, but doing kind of consulting with for-profits and nonprofits, I saw this kind of growing trend in corporate responsibility. Um, I was really kind of intrigued by that work, but I had never uh, actually worked in it. And so about two years ago, got the opportunity to kind of come on board at Lyft, which is a brand that meant a lot to me. It's a, it's a product that I loved and used all the time, especially in San Francisco, because we have very bad public transit. Um, and it was also a company that I'd really seen stand up for its values before. And I was really excited about that opportunity to jump on board at a company where it was really, really baked in from the beginning. Um, you'll probably hear me say this throughout, but one of the strongest things that I think makes a company do good corporate responsibility work is having founders that believe in it and like continued leadership that believes in that, where you don't have to pitch them on doing social responsibility. It's kind of in their bones. Um, and kind of a, a track record of hiring people that care about that and having really strong values. Um, so with that said, let me walk you a little bit through kind of what we do at Lyft and what that looks like. Hmm. Oh, there we go. So um, Lyft obviously spelled in a funny way to many people includes that why, and we always talk about the why is like, what is our why for why the company exists? Our mission statement as a company, our why is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation. That's not our corporate responsibility tagline. That is the company mission. So everything has always been rooted in improving people's lives. What that means to us is really investing in the type of work that, um, that makes the world a better place, but in a way that is unique to Lyft. So any company, any individual can write checks. In the scheme of things, Lyft is a fairly small company compared to you know, big banks and huge multinational companies. If we write checks, they will be smaller than everyone else's. So what we do is really try to lead into where we can have a unique uh, value add and how we can tie our impact to the business that we do. So there's kind of three components of the work that we do that I'll talk you through. The first is providing transportation. Donated and discounted transportation is a huge way that we can add value. The second is transportation infrastructure. So actually building things like bikes and scooters that kind of live on the ground and help to, to build up that infrastructure that's really important. And the last is creating a sustainable and green future. With our donated transportation, uh, that work actually started with a lot of um, natural disaster response. So it started around hurricanes um, and uh, thinking about how we could respond in the moment to people who need needed transportation. This is a recent, uh, uh, from last year, there was the, the cold front in um, most of the, the Northwest um, and the polar vortex, and we provided rides to people to warming shelters. We've done it in the wake of fires, but tons of disaster response was where this kind of started from, and we were seeing this immediate demand for transportation. We also then saw a need for this in kind of a, um, in, in a really big moment in the 2018 election. Um, again, we have not been along, around for that long as a company, so all of these programs are a little bit newer. So in the last election, um, we saw a really incredible stat that in 2016, there were 15 million people across the US who were registered to vote but did not show up to the polls because of transportation issues. So obviously Lyft has a clear role to play in that, being a transportation company. Um, and we created this program, the Ride to Vote, where we uh, provided support to hundreds of thousands of people across the U.S. to help them get 
help not only get them to the polls with transportation, but also utilize that time when they're in the ride. Um, and you know, you're taking a car, you maybe have five minutes, 15 minutes where you're not really doing anything and thinking about how to use that to get people registered to vote. Most recently, um, or about in the last year, we launched two really exciting new programs that are, that are really flagship programs for us. The first of those is our grocery access program. Uh, 23 million people in the US live in what's called a food desert, which means a kind of food insecure area where you do not have access to healthy fruits and vegetables um, or a good grocery store. We recognize this is a major issue from a transportation perspective and something that we could have an impact on. Um, it's specifically with low-income individuals, 2.3 million people live more than 10 miles from a grocery store. So it's not even just that they're like a little bit far away. Many of these are very far away from folks. So we launched a new program where we're providing individuals, families in particular, um, transportation to and from the grocery store twice a week to get um, to the places that are closest with those healthy uh, fruits and vegetables to kind of improve overall health. Our other big program that we just launched actually um, this past month is our jobs access program. Uh, the number one determinant of people being able to uh, take themselves out of poverty is actually commute time and ability to get to work. And so we recognize not only do we need to help people get jobs um, and employment in order to set them up for long-term success, but we also have an opportunity to help um, get people kind of going into their job at the beginning before they have the, the cash in their pocket to, um, to pay for their own transportation moving forward. Um, so we created a program where we provide rides to job interviews, job trainings, and the first three weeks of work or until people get their first paycheck um, from their jobs. This has been a really, really exciting program that we're proud of. Um, those are kind of our big national programs, but we also have a local grants program where we're providing um, very small local grant, um, you know, $1,000, $2,000 ride credit grants to local organizations all across the country. Um, and we are providing these two hyper-local nonprofits who have a clear need for transportation. And for these really small nonprofits, that can be a game changer, that little amount of, um, of ride credit. And so, you know, we're doing this for everything from, um, you know, youth programs to supporting people experiencing homelessness to supporting domestic violence victims. There are so many people that need transportation. And this is a really interesting and like unique way that Lyft can have an impact. So, Again, we could just write checks to all of these organizations, but instead we're filling a really um, strong gap in, in something that they actually need and that can't easily be provided by other companies or um, by other entities. Another aspect of our donated and discounted transportation is our bikes and scooters. Um, so in the last um, year or two years, <laughs> we have uh, start, launched a number of markets uh, providing bikes and scooters. So we have bikes in eight markets and scooters in about 20 markets across the, the country. Um, and we're providing in every one of those markets, we have a discounted or free pass for individuals who um, qualify for state, federal, or local um, assistance. And so these are providing micromobility access. So in particular, helping people get perhaps to and from a bus station or from um, to a train station to be able to um, access other modes of transit that they otherwise would not be able to get to. Um, because many people live more than, you know, a mile or two miles from those closest forms of transportation. So these are really, really big programs that we're investing in because we have that unique ability operationally to do so. Uh, Another aspect of uh, the work that we're doing, as I alluded to, is our environmental work. Uh, we, as you know, you know, there are many cars on the road as, um, that, that take part in the Lyft platform. Um, all of those rides are, you know, creating greenhouse gas emissions, and we're very aware of that. And we recognize that cars are one of the, the largest um, adding factors to greenhouse gas emissions, and we wanted to do something proactively about that. And so we became one of the world's largest voluntary purchasers of carbon offsets. So without going into too much detail, if you're not familiar, a carbon offset is effectively, um, you are, um, the, think, you know, you're planting a tree for, you know, that uh, offsets every uh, mile that you're driving. So you're kind of breaking even on the environmental um, uh, impacts. And so this is a way that we could immediately have an impact on you know, to mitigate the negative impacts that we were having by adding cars to the roads, um, because that is kind of a short-term um, short effect of our business model. But 
uh, what's really exciting about Lyft is that we have a much more long-term vision. So those carbon offsets were kind of a short-term Band-Aid solution, I would call it, uh, in order to take an action on something immediately, but we have a much broader kind of long-term vision about how we will be sustainable in the future and how we'll actually drastically reduce those greenhouse gas emissions. So there are kind of four prongs to what that looks like. The first is shared rides. Right now, the average car is used 4% of the time. And then when it is used, it's used uh, by one person, which means you have about a 1% usage rate uh, effectively on a car. That is atrocious and really adds to greenhouse gas emissions all across the country. So Lyft's goal is to stop people from individual car ownership. And the more people that we can get into every car, the more effective we are at kind of decreasing greenhouse gas emissions across the board. So shared rides where, you know, you're picking up multiple people along the way rather than just having one person in a car uh, makes a huge difference in the long term of us being able to um, decrease car ownership and decrease greenhouse gas emissions across the board. Electric vehicles are also a huge portion of that. We are um, very actively trying to switch our fleet across the board to electric vehicles. So we rent a number of uh, cars across the country to drivers, um, and we are, we are trying to switch out many of those cars. A lot of them are already uh, hybrids, but we're trying to switch them out for electric vehicles. That is the, the vision. And we just launched um, a whole uh, fleet of new electric vehicles in Denver this past week that we're super excited about. Uh, the bottom right is multimodal, which is all those bikes and scooters I was talking about. Still a ton of car rides, whether, you know, Lyft or rideshare rides or, you know, you all driving um, are less than two miles. And multimodal, so bikes and scooters and other forms of micromobility, it's called, can be really valuable at getting people to and from places in a kind of fast way that actually decreases traffic and decreases car usage. And lastly, autonomous vehicles, um, which it may seem far away to all of you, um, if you if you don't have uh, autonomous vehicles there, but in San Francisco, they're driving all over the roads all the time already. Um, I see them every day. And so autonomous vehicles are coming. It's very exciting. Um, but in particular, it's exciting because those autonomous vehicles will be electric. And so it is a way to get more electric vehicles onto the road. And the more people using electric shared autonomous lift rides, the less people owning cars, and the better we'll be in the long term. So this is obviously like a very, very long term vision, and it's going to take us uh, many years to get there. And that's why we've invested in those carbon offsets as a starting point. But this is how we'll kind of um, build that vision in the long term. And so those are big kind of philanthropic investments in the way that we think about social change in, um, in a really targeted way. But it's worth noting that what I think makes Lyft very unique is that we have very strong company values that everybody internally adheres to. And those values help us to define the way that we act both internally and externally. And it means that the company as a whole acts in a very socially conscious way, not just you know, my team in a, in a silo doing all these programs. We all kind of function in this way. So our three values at Lyft are be yourself, uplift others, and make it happen. Um, be yourself is really just bringing your whole self to work. We're a very inclusive and diverse community and we want everyone to feel like they can bring whoever they are in their whole self to work. Uplifting others is to not only, you know, support each other at work, we're not, it's not a competitive environment, it's a supportive, we win together kind of environment, um, but also um, in the way that we act externally. We always think about how our programs can uplift others outside in the community. Uh, and lastly, make it happen, um, really just uh, being scrappy, getting it done, and kind of jumping in. Although we are a public company now, we're still a very kind of startup feel, real scrappy. Um, and all of these things together really help us to do a ton of work out in the community uh, beyond just, again, our social impact team, the whole company doing that work. So a couple examples of programs that I do not have any really hand in, but um, I have kind of advised on and whatnot, but they're owned by other parts of the company. And it just goes to show how that whole kind of company ethos and having those strong values can, um, can follow through. One of those is our Roundup and Donate feature. This is in the app um, and we, um, we allow individuals to round up to the nearest dollar on any ride that they take and that goes to a cause of their choice. And so, you know, if your ride's uh, 12 
90, you're going to round up 10 cents to, you know, any, any cause that you select. Um, we have raised, I believe, over $16 million at this point for nonprofits across the country, which we're super, super proud of. And it's just those little cents at a time. But because we have a large footprint of riders across the country, that's really added up. Another great example is um, we recognized uh, that we wanted to support um, tr the transgender community better throughout our user experience and so that um, those individuals felt safe in our community. And so we, uh, this past year, launched an op option in the app for you to select your pronouns so that, they, that you can be addressed in the way that you would like to from, um, from your drivers. And so this was a really strong uh, step that we're really proud of that, again, wasn't led by the social impact team. It was just something that made sense within the company because that's the kind of vibe and ethos that we have built. So when we think about um, measuring the impact of all of these different programs, um, I think the right way to be thinking about measuring social impact in a company is always in kind of two separate pillars. One is the social impact that we have, um, and the other is the business impact that we have. The social impact is like, what good tangibly did we do in the world? And I generally think about those in the terms of outputs versus outcomes. I'm not sure if you've heard the distinction between those before, but outputs are usually the kind of immediate things that come out of a, a program. What is this? What is the, you know, the thing that you produced? And then the outcome is the long-term um, tangible results from that. So some examples are, you know, the outputs of a ride program might be the number of people served or the number of rides donated, the number of dollars that equated to, which gives you some semblance of, um, you know, if a, if a program is working. But the outcomes that we really try to measure are, you know, for our jobs access program, what are the number of people getting jobs in part due to that transportation access? What is the percentage of people sustaining those jobs for greater than six months because they were able to get to work and um, you know, get the cash in their pocket to be able to continue to get there? For our grocery access program, what's the percentage increase in fruits and vegetables purchased by the individuals in that program more consistently? What is the, uh, was there a decrease in self-reported insecurity rates around insecurity um, in health and in transportation or anything like that? So those are the more like meaty things that are harder to measure but more important. And so these are the types of things that if you work at a nonprofit, you're also going to be talking about outputs and outcomes of all of your programs. And so I think very much about measuring our programs in the way that I would measure a nonprofit program. And then on the business impact side, um, we are a for-profit company. And so we do talk about how the work that we do on social impact comes back to benefit the business. And I think a, a misconception is that, that that's a bad thing. I think as long as the work that we are doing or any company that you're seeing is doing is actually very strong, grounded work that has actual impact and have, we've measured that impact, then it's okay to get business benefit from that. And so what I mean by that is riders and drivers for Lyft, as well as our employees, our investors, policymakers, like local elected officials, business clients of ours, like other companies that, that use Lyft, all of them uh, are positively impacted or you know uh, respond positively to this work that we do with social impact we get a lot of riders and drivers saying that they want to be part of the lyft community because of the values that we stand for you know we have employees saying that the number one reason they came to lyft is because of the social impact work that we do and the values that we stand for and that's okay that's a good thing those business impacts um as long as that that um social impact is really there as well and that leads me to kind of, to wrap up, I think that, as I was saying, sometimes people think it's at odds that you can't do both good business and have, uh, you know, do something good in the world. And we don't think that. At Lyft, we really believe that you can do the right thing and, and be a profitable business and, you know, do uh, good business at the same time. And the way that we've done that is, by kind of transitioning from what I would say is the traditional business to what I envision as the future state of companies. So traditional businesses are, you know, you have your profit-driven model, and then you have this tiny corporate social responsibility arm that is doing, you know, some social impact work or some grant making or some employee volunteering or something, but it's very siloed. Whereas I think the kind of companies of the future that are really doing this work well are these ones that have a joint strategy that really combines that business and that impact and enables it to kind of thrive together so that you can have that mutual benefit. 
So with that, I will wrap up and stop talking and um, kind of open it up for some, some questions and conversation from you all. Thank you so much, Lisa. That was awesome. Um, so I, I have two questions to start uh, off. One is kind of an icebreaker. Have you ever thought about changing the I in Lisa to Y? <laughs> I have not, but now I will. Okay, so there we go. Uh -oh. There's a lot of paperwork to do that, so maybe not, but I'll think about it. <laughs> All right, very cool. Um, the other thing that I uh, was wondering, for the students who would want to explore a career in corporate responsibility, what would you recommend? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a tough one. Um, to be totally transparent, there are way more people interested in corporate responsibility than there are jobs available. So if you look at Lyft, for example, we have um, almost 6,000 employees and we have three people on our social impact team. As compared to, if you look at a marketing team, for example, you know, there's I don't know, 400 people on the marketing team. Um, so th there are very few jobs in the sector and, um, and it's, hard to, it's hard to find them. I also think that Corporate responsibility is defined very differently in very different in, in different companies. So sometimes a role in social impact or corporate responsibility might be very focused internally on employee engagement. Um, so volunteering, employee giving, that type of kind of event management. Um, sometimes it might be grant making. Um, so I think first and foremost, I would um, stop to think about what you what type of work you want to do. And do you want, are you interested in grant making? Are you interested in employee engagement and volunteering? Are you interested in um, more of the kind of programmatic work like what I was talking about? Um, because they, they might send you to very different companies. I also think you wanna think about how formalized a program is. So if you're early on in building a program, you're kind of shaping it and, and coming up with new programs. If you're jumping into Microsoft philanthropies, you're going to be executing on long-standing philanthropic programs that they have had for years and you're just kind of coming in to, to keep them maintained. So I think those aspects are like really good starting points to think about. Um, but I will say again, those roles are still pretty hard to get and very few and far between. So what I would actually recommend you all do is to think through those types of companies of the future that I was just talking about where the entire company stands for something more. And so if you look at companies like Lyft or Airbnb, um, Flexport is a great one, which is like a shipping company uh, that people haven't heard of, but they do really interesting work around sustainability. Um, there are a number of companies out there where the underlying ethos of the company is socially driven, and therefore you could sit in many job functions and touch social impact. So at Lyft, for example, our team may be only three people, but we have someone who sits on comms and works entirely on social impact, but they, their role is a comms role, not a social impact role. We have people who sit on marketing, but work on social impact. We have people who sit on the business team, but work on you know, supporting nonprofits on the business side. Um, so if you're going to a company where it is part of the DNA, then there, you can take many roles and kind of touch that in your day-to-day -day work without it um, having to be your full-time job. And so I think that's kind of a way to get into the corporate responsibility world or to get into a company that you believe in without um, necessarily looking exactly for those social impact roles. Okay, thank you. I have a couple other questions, but I want to open it up to the students. Does anybody have a question? All right, uh, Danny in the back, and I'll, I'll just repeat it just... Did you hear that? I did not. <laughs> okay, so uh, Danny in the back uh, asked, uh, you mentioned about B2B uh, programs that you have in the back or, or uh, at the end of your uh, talk. And the question was, how, how do you incorporate corporate responsibility or there's opportunity in those partnerships? Is that, and how does that work? Was that the question? Yeah, awesome. Um, so we have a whole uh, Lyft business arm, which um, provides B2B services. So, you know, you go to work at 
Bank of America and uh, you know, you're traveling for work and you're using your corporate credit card to take a lift to charge back to the company um, when you're going to and from your meetings. So we have a huge number of clients like that. Um, and our Lyft business team kind of supports, um, I would say there's two different aspects of how we overlap with them. One is actually supporting nonprofits. So a number of nonprofits also need to use transportation, whether that's for their employees or for, um, for their communities. So a great example is the American Cancer Society is a large paying client of ours. Um, they used to have a volunteer program where volunteers picked up uh, individual women with breast cancer to get them to and from um, chemo. And they realized that it was actually more expensive to manage a volunteer network and to kind of bother people to make sure that they were going to show up and to coordinate all the logistics than it was to actually pay for people to just get lift rides. And so it was much more operationally efficient. And so we have a large program with them where we provide rides all over the country for people getting to and from chemo appointments. Um, so that is a paying client that sits on our B2B side, um, even though they are a nonprofit. And so we do a lot with them to kind of honor them. That's why American Cancer Society, for example, is in our Roundup and Donate feature. Um, but that is, they are supported by our Lyft business function specifically. We also, with our for-profit clients, um, I would say social impact and values come in, in um, on both the pitching side and the engagement side. So on the pitching side, there are a number of clients that we're going to speak to and there are, as you all know, you know, two big players in this space, and um, our, our competition is not, uh, does not have the same values that we do, um, and that's a really big differentiator for us. So when we're going to pitch to a company who is really values-driven, whether that means that they're sustainability-focused, uh, well, we're 100% carbon neutral, or they care about the community, here are all the ways that we invest in the community. There's a lot of values alignment there that gives us a one-up on our uh, competition just because of um, having that same kind of underlying goal um, and because we can kind of align on that front. So it's definitely used in kind of the, um, the sales or, uh, you know, bringing new, new companies on. Um, and then on the other side of things, we're engaging with companies that we partner with around social responsibility. So, um, for example, we have a program called Lift One, where some of our biggest companies uh, that are our, our B2B partners 1% of the money that they spent with us, spend with us is donated back to a nonprofit partner. Um, so there are ways that we can kind of work with them so that we can mutually um, uh, make an impact together. Great, thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Hi, um, I had a question about, you were talking about how you guys do like um, natural disaster responses. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious, like, so if there's like more need for transportation because of like a wildfire, like you mentioned, like, um, I guess just like, how do you have Lyft drivers that are like able to help if there is like that disaster? Great question. Um, the first thing that we always do when there's a disaster is make sure that our drivers are safe. And we actually mostly do disaster response post disaster and not in the moment. So we actually very rarely do evacuations or anything like that because we're making sure that our drivers are safe first and foremost. Um, a lot of the work that we do is, so after a hurricane, for example, we have this great partner called Team Rubicon, um, which uh, takes veterans who have served and who are very good at responding in disasters and um, in you know, managing that type of process. Uh, these veterans come and volunteer on the ground uh, and Team Rubicon organizes all of that. So we provide rides for those, um, for those individuals, those volunteers to get to and from the airports to get out to where they need to go to do their work. Um, we also work with United Way and their 211 hotline. Um, so all across the country, United Way, the nonprofit offers a hotline where if you dial 211, you can get all sorts of kind of benefits and access. Um, so many people, not even in the few days after, like in the few months after a disaster, are calling 211 to, to ask them all sorts of questions. And oftentimes people need transportation for any number of causes. It might be to get to a like a, um, you know, a shelter or to a, a uh, place to get food, or it might be to get to, um, you know, town hall to file some sort of paperwork or something like that, um, if they've lost a house. Um, so there, there are all sorts of different scenarios where people are calling in for transportation and we're providing that in the aftermath. Um, so it kind of depends on the scenario. We have a whole team that manages, like, looks at how are the roads doing? Are they open? Are there government warnings? Uh, you know, and, and manages accordingly. Um, but most of the work that you'll see is in the aftermath for 
exactly that reason that you said. Great, thank you. Here we have another question over here. Hi, you kind of talked about how your one of your pillars is having autonomous cars. Do you perceive Lyft no longer having physical drivers in the future? It's a great question. Um, right now, um, rideshare is only I think 0.4% of all vehicle miles traveled um, in the US. So it's still a tiny, tiny percentage of kind of the, the total, total use case. So we see as people start to, as our service go, grows and people start to stop having cars, um, the vision for Lyft is that we would have, um, we have a membership model already and where people have kind of a, a membership and that's your main way to get around. Like I, for example, do not own a car. Um, so the more that people are using Lyft, the more drivers we need. We actually do not have enough drivers right now. We need more drivers. And so um, in the next you know, foreseeable future, the autonomous cars will be supplementing drivers. So the demand is going to grow faster than the number of drivers will. And so it will be additive on top of human drivers. I eventually those roles, those kind of human drivers will sunset. I think we're quite far from that. Um, but the idea in the long term, as that happens, is that, you know, perhaps your car is less of a, you know, your autonomous car maybe doesn't look like the car of today that you get picked it up in by Lyft. It looks more like a, you know, a coffee shop on wheels or, you know, and you have more of the experience of a plane where you get served coffee while you're on it or someone's there to be your attendant. And so I think there are other opportunities for humans to play roles in that future. Um, so I think, again, it'll be a long time before we're actually phasing out those human drivers. And I also think we'll probably only phase them out in like major cities where you have high density of, uh, of cars and that's where you would have those kind of autonomous fleets. Um, but I think in the long term, there are other opportunities to kind of move those people from driving into other roles. Great, thank you. Uh, any other questions? Dun, 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 dun. Hi, yes, um, I saw that you guys talked more about like public projects and infrastructures within that, but what major initiatives have you guys done when it comes to public transportation or projects that you're gonna do with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we do have a transit feature within our app. So we work very closely with city governments to be able to provide um, what we call multimodal um, transit. So um, instead of you opening your Google Maps to figure out like how to get from A to B, you could open your Lyft app and it could tell you, you know, you could walk here, you could take a bus here, you could take a scooter here or a bike this long and, you know, and here's how long it would take for a car and here are the price points on all of those things. And so in an ideal world, they'll all be, um, we're already building that out, but that's kind of the, the future of what it will look like. So transit is already kind of tied in. Um, from an infrastructure perspective specifically, um, there's kind of uh, two big things that we do. One is actually building the fiscal infrastructure and the other is advocacy on behalf of that. So from a physical infrastructure perspective, um, at the moment we're very focused on bikes and scooters. So when we think about how we are deploying our bikes and scooters, we're thinking about how we're providing those in low-income areas as well. So in New York, for example, um, we own what is currently called City Bike. Um, and uh, so I'm not sure if anyone's been to New York, but the bike share system there. Um, and we have bike share systems and those docks that you see all over the city. And we are invested in putting a number of those in low-income areas. And in particular, those individuals using those in low-income areas are also on those equity passes that I alluded to. Um, so those investments are not um, investments that are meant by any means to make the company money. They are investments that are meant to support the public good in the you know, providing of transportation access where most needed. So we're doing a ton of investments in that kind of transportation infrastructure and putting it in communities that need that most as that first mile, last mile transit to get to other forms of transportation. And the other thing that we're doing is advocating for things like bike lanes and things like better street uh, management uh, that makes kind of multimodal um, transportation more efficient and safer. So for example, in downtown San Francisco, um, we have uh, this one street that kind of uh, diagonally cuts through everything called Market Street. Market Street right now is absolutely terrible to bike down. There are all sorts of buses, there are cars going in and out of lanes. It's really not set up well, but it's also a major thoroughfare for individuals. 
And so we've been part of a program or a kind of discussions with the government for quite a long time to get to this better market street uh, model that just recently got approved, where we'll be taking cars off of market street and it will be just for bikes, scooters, pedestrians. Um, it will be totally redone um, in a way that makes it much safer and more friendly for that kind of uh, micro mobility. So we're doing a ton um, of that planning and advocacy work um, that's less of the financial investment in the infrastructure itself, but a lot of time and energy thinking through what that could look like. Great, thank you. Um, Kurt, why don't you walk up so Lisa can see you and while he's walking up, uh, I actually have a question. Mm -hmm. Can you see me? Yep. <laughs> no, I'm looking over here. Uh, so there we go. Um, uh, as far as um, environmental and social reporting, like a GRI report, uh, does Lyft do an annual GRI report or something similar? Great question. I was just on my plane this morning writing a draft of our 40-page report. So uh, yes, we are working actually on our first ever um, formal annual report. Um, in the past, um, we have done uh, we have done an economic impact report, which you can find at liftimpact.com if you're interested. That's um, really focused on kind of the impacts of our business as a whole. Um, so the number of drivers that we have, their um, their kind of age demographics, who our driver base is, who our rider base is, how our platform helps to minimize drinking and driving or impair driving, how our um, you know how our product increases access in otherwise um, previously underserved communities that never had, you know, taxis before, for example. Um, so that report has been, uh, we've been doing on an annual basis every, uh, for the past, I think, three years. Um, and this year we're looking to build out a broader um, research, uh, sorry, a, a broader report that is focused on um, environmental, social, and governance structures more along the lines of GRI. So we're actually not basing it entirely off of GRI. Um, for those of you who I'm not sure if you're all familiar, but um, investors and um, folks that are kind of within the environmental, social, and governance space is what it's called, ESG. Um, there are a couple of different kind of formal models for reporting out. GRI and SASB are the two biggest ones, um, but MSCI is a, a growing one that many businesses are using. And there's still not a lot of agreement, to be honest, within the for-profit sector around what you report on and in what format. Um, so we're doing a little bit of a, you know, make your own this year um, based off of the kind of um, programs that we're running and some of the, the uh, factors that we um, feel are most relevant and important to report on right now. Um, and then we'll be doing some more thinking in the next year or so around if we do want to kind of fall into one of those more formal existing uh, frameworks or if we want to kind of build our own framework uh, more continuously. Thank you. At least the first time I heard Mark spoke, he said that you should give your company a heart, which is give it a foundation to put money towards. Mm -hmm. And I know this didn't happen overnight. The business roundtable and other thought leaders, they're moving away from the cutthroat, make profit. What is the environment that is making this large push? Because I know that these problems existed for a while. This is nothing new, but it seems to be an overwhelming movement towards corporate responsibility, is there any kind of undercurrent that you could speak of or is it just a great time to be alive? <laughs> um, I wanna say it's just a great time to be alive, but no, I do think that there's that, um, some strong undercurrent. I think, um, so prior to the business roundtable, um, making that statement, um, and again, actually to back up for a second, for those of you all who aren't super familiar, the business roundtable is a coalition of some of the biggest companies in the world. And this kind of group of CEOs, I think it's maybe 50 or 100 of the CEOs of these top biggest companies made a statement in the last couple of months about how, um, you know, it's not just about profits anymore. It's about more than that. It's about those environmental, social, and governance aspects that I was just talking about. Um, they're actually a little late to the game. Uh, I think the first one in the first really prominent voice in the for-profit space to be saying that was uh, Larry Fink, the head of uh, BlackRock, which is a big investment fund. Um, and in his letter to shareholders, two, maybe even three years ago now, um, he was the first to say, um, you know, it, it's about more than just the bottom line. You need to be thinking about it holistically. Um, I think there, I think there are two kind of um, 
ways to think about it. One is that uh, my generation, your generation, and kind of uh, you know younger generations are more and more philanthropic and more and more critical of companies who are not doing it the right way. And so there is a business opportunity, a positive business opportunity in doing things the right way. Um, I think a lot of companies have seen, or a lot of investors have seen companies like Lyft be successful on, um, on these grounds of, of um, social impact. They've seen, you know, Patagonia be, be really successful in that. They've seen um, when we made our, um, we made a $1 million commitment to the ACLU after the Muslim ban a couple of years ago. And that was one of our biggest growth moments. Um, and I think company investors are seeing companies have success in places where they stand up for their values. Um, and that's the kind of positive opportunity. The other kind of less um, shiny way to think about it is minimizing risk. So investors also don't want companies that they have put their money into to be risky. And when you have scandals that, you know, and people boycott or people, you know, are talking about how they hate a company because of those values, that's a risk to an investor. So investors and big companies are also thinking about, you know, by doing the right thing, not only do you potentially have the opportunity to get more people to care um, about you, you have the potential to recruit more people to work for you, um, you know, and to, to be passionate and to stay at the company, but also you minimize the risk of people wanting to kind of boycott your company or, or be mad at it. Um, so I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think there are some good intentions and I think there are some, uh, uh, selfish intentions, but at the end of the day, if we're all moving in a direction where companies are doing the right thing, then that's a very positive thing in my book. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, any other questions? Here we go, Stephen. Um, when calling a ride for Lyft, has, have you guys thought about implementing sort of like an electric or a hybrid vehicle section for that? We actually do have uh, what's called green mode um, in uh, select markets. Um, the reason why it's not everywhere is that at the end of the day, most people, um, as I'm sure you all in the room can relate to, uh, when most people make a decision on if they're actually going to call a ride and if they have a good experience in a Lyft ride or any other ride share ride, it is reliant on price and your ETA. And so if you're going to have a mode where there's one person in your whole area that has an electric vehicle, and then you're in that mode and we tell you it's going to be $50 and it's going to take them an hour to get to you, you're going to be annoyed. And so we've actually only implemented um, green mode in places where we have a um, high number of electric and um, and uh, hybrid vehicles already. So it's live in Portland and some other markets like that and where we actually have a high number of drivers with that. So as we're trying to move up, there's kind of two aspects of Lyft's fleet um, that we call it. Um, one is driver-owned vehicles, um, which is the, the, the main section of our, um, of our cars on the road, which means that we can't control what cars they are because the drivers are bringing their own cars. The other is our express drive fleet. And that is what, what I alluded to earlier, where drivers are renting vehicles from us. Um, and then, you know, by driving with Lyft, they're paying off those vehicles at the same time that they're making money. So with that fleet, that's what we have a lot more of a uh, control over. So that's where we're trying to, to um, consistently move those towards, uh, towards electric vehicles um, in the hopes that if we are investing in electric vehicles in that, we can also invest in electric vehicle infrastructure, which then makes that infrastructure more available to other people out there. And then maybe more of our drivers will be excited about driving electric vehicles. Um, so it's a long game play. I think in the short term, you might see that in some markets that you go to. If you fly into a city that's, that's super socially conscious and, um, or environmentally conscious and already has a lot of vehicles. Um, but the reason why it's not live everywhere is because um, it wouldn't be the best user experience for you. We want to make sure that you get you know, your ride fast and you get your ride at the price that makes sense for you. Great question. Any other questions? Here we go. Hey, uh, I just wanted to ask, what is your company's relationship with Uber? Since this is like a co competing company, uh, do you guys ever talk to them or have any sort of relationship with them? Or do you find them trying to steal your ideas or maybe vice versa? Um, I mean, you always have some, some good competition when you're just a dual marketplace. Um, obviously, there are other players, but 
um, they're more market specific and they're, they tend to be smaller players. So um, yes, there's absolutely competition. Um, you know, anytime we get press about something that we're doing, you know, press is asking, oh, is Uber doing it? And vice versa. Um, so there, there's definitely a bit of that. But I would say the primary place where I think we work together is actually on policy advocacy. Um, uh, we are, Lyft is a, uh, what's called a TNC, um, a, like a, a transportation network company, and um, it is a new industry. And so and there's still a lot of lack of clarity around, um, or, or new, newly building kind of laws around how we are regulated and, and how, um, how we intersect with government. And so that is a place where um, Uber and ourselves are um, kind of uh, in, in the same boat, so to speak, and, and, and we do in fact work together. Um, so one aspect, for example, is around, um, is around how um, our, our drivers are classified, which is a kind of complicated issue that we are really working together with not only Uber, but also, um, you know, DoorDash and um, Grubhub and um, Instacart and like all these other players that are in this new gig economy, because the gig economy is something that's new. And it's something that um, regulators haven't really figured out exactly what to do with yet. Um, and so there's still a lot of moving and changing pieces. So although there's definitely some competition, we're also kind of partners in, in, in some ways on, on the, the work that we're doing and advocating for, you know, new forms of, of labor law or employment law or things like that. Wonderful. Thank you. Any other questions? Maybe one or two more. Um, I want to respect Lisa's time. And okay, we have a question back here. So how does Lyft balance their efforts, your efforts with employee benefits and like driver benefits and driver salaries? Like how do you balance your investment in that? Do you mean, do you mean uh, like budget wise, how do we decide where to put different funds? Kind of so that you get satisfa driver satisfaction with their benefits and salaries. Yeah, um, so with our, I'll separate the two um, uh, because our drivers are not employees. Um, so they are independent contractors. Um, and the, the primary reason for that is flexibility. So I don't know if any of you have ever like waited tables before. I have a lot in my life. There is no flexibility in it. Someone tells you where to be, you get a schedule the week before. It's really tough. It's really frustrating. Um, and especially if you're a, you know, single mom or you're retired and you're trying to, you know, make a few extra dollars here and there, or if you're trying to save for something in particular. Um, so 91% of our drivers are, uh, drive less than 20 hours a week. Um, and 96% of them say that they chose to drive with Lyft and continue to drive with Lyft specifically because of the flexibility that it offers. And that is the primary aspect of it. So we, um, our, our driver population is very different than our, our employee population. Um, with our employees, we do in fact do, um, uh, we do employee volunteering, um, we host kind of events, but actually um, our company focuses less on employee volunteering than I would say that other um, companies you might hear of or, or you know, talk to do. Partially in, in my perspective, that's because the company itself does a lot of meaningful work in the community. Um, and so many people get to touch impact-related projects in their day-to-day -day work that less people are like yearning for filling that void, <laughs> for lack of a better term, via a volunteer opportunity. So not to say that volunteering isn't great, but I think um, at a company, planning volunteering events is, um, is a lot of time and energy, um, and it is not always... Um, the most impactful, whereas the work that we're doing and allowing people to really like take action in their day-to-day -day jobs is actually, you know, and be part of something bigger that the company is standing for is actually what I believe keeps people here. Um, and it's definitely what we've heard in kind of employee surveys and things like that. Um, and with our drivers, we're really thinking about how we can um, help them understand the impact that they're having on communities. So kind of articulating to our drivers about how they're providing rides for people to get to chemo, for people to get to job interviews, for people to get to, you know, um, uh, to any number, of, to the grocery store, or any other um, location that they need to, and how they are an important part of this ecosystem, an part, important part of kind of that community um, support structure. Um, and that is something that we find to be, uh, to, to really resonate well with our drivers. 
Thank you. Um, let me uh, ask the last question here. Um, so could you give us what uh, you think the future of commerce is in the sense of how important is CR um, going to be in um, being part of a business plan? Do you uh, yeah, take it away. <laughs> Yeah, I think kind of going back to the question earlier about the business roundtable and how companies are acting now, I think it's becoming an ever, you know, an ever more important part of companies' strategies. Um, whether that is an opportunistic strategy of companies thinking that they will do better business if they have social impact tied in, or if it's a risk mitigation strategy, um, again, I don't really care as long as the work is there. Um, and so I think it's we're moving companies in a direction that's really positive. So the amount of investors, for example, that are talking about environmental, social, and governance factors is really, really important. Um, the more integral that becomes to the investing community, the more integral it will become to uh, the, the companies themselves. So I think we're slowly seeing it become more and more and more prevalent. What I'm really excited about is um, I think to date, or you know, right now, many of the biggest companies are still these long-standing old-school companies who are late to come around to it. Like these business roundtable, uh, you know, uh, CEOs again are like super late to the game in this. So you know, they're slowly moving towards that. But what I'm more excited about is this next generation of up-and-coming businesses, more like the lifts of the world, where you know it can and I think more often will be really baked into the mission from day one. And I think those are the companies that are really going to impact our world in a positive way. Um, I think the big companies can do less harm and some of them can turn around and, and become really socially conscious, but I think most of them it's, it's really just doing less harm. Um, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity with these new companies who are growing today and started by folks like yourself who have a conscious from day one and um, are really thinking about how it's included in every aspect of the work that you're doing and how you're making decisions um, with those values in mind and not just with bottom line in mind. I think the more companies that we have growing like that, that's where it's going to be really a game changer in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and um, just uh, your presentation. It, it's really insightful and I'm so glad for all the students who came out to hear it. Hopefully you guys were inspired. And uh, so thank you, thank you so much. I'll, I'll yeah, everybody. <laughs> thank you guys so much, it's great chatting with you. So thank you so much. I'll, I'll shoot you an email and, and uh, just follow up, but just really appreciate you taking the time, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. Have a great All rest right. of your startup week. All right. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining the Florida State Podcast of Entrepreneurship and Innovation. If you would like to be notified of new episodes, please subscribe via your favorite player. Also, if you like the podcast, please take the time to share it on social media give it a five-star rating, and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you enjoy your podcasts. This will help us get the word out to other entrepreneurs that the FSU Entrepreneurship Podcast has been launched.